0: Welcome, everyone. I'm your host, Angelica Beener, and this is Milestones, a podcast where my special guests and I dive deeply into musical and cultural landmarks that are celebrating a milestone year. Season two of Milestones is in partnership with WBGO Studios, joining an amazing podcast lineup. On this episode, we explore Roberta Flack's 1973 release, Killing Me Softly, which turns 50 this year. And speaking of milestones, happy birthday, Miss Roberta Flack, who turns 86 years young today. And as we send Miss Flack all of the birthday flowers we can, we also send her an abundance of healing energy. Joining me for this special double milestone anniversary episode is the award-winning vocalist, composer, and educator, Sharnay Wade. As a first runner-up in the 2010 Thelonious Monk Vocal Competition, critically acclaimed Wade has excited audiences all over the world with her ingenuity and vibrancy. A recipient of the 2017 Jazz at Lincoln Center Millennial Swing Award, Wade has worked with notable artists including Wynton Marsalis, Terry Lynn Carrington, Christian McBride and many more. As an educator, she is currently an instructor at Aaron Copeland School, Peabody Institute of John Hopkins University, and the Juilliard School. Together, we discuss Killing Me Softly, the new PBS American Masters documentary, which chronicles Flack's fascinating career, and Wade speaks on Flack's invitation to expand what soul and activism can sound like, and the true role and impact of the interpreter. That and so much more. Let's get into it.
1: Thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me. I feel so honored. I really, really do. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Oh, wow. I feel doubly honored. <laughs> and I'm just so, so happy to, to have you here. Um, you and I have had an opportunity to talk about music over the years and even bond through uh, <laughs> 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 we have we have a special bond as it relates to music and being native new Yorkers and uh-huh. and things like that. But we've never spoken about Roberta Flack. And what's interesting mm. is that when I thought about doing this episode and this record, you came up so vividly in my mind. It was really deep. And since then with, you know, sort of getting prepared, it it, it almost feels spiritual. Mm. It's really, really deep, especially us having
1: never spoken about her before. I know it's quite interesting. I, I, I have to say that when you asked me to do this, a little light switch went off for me and, uh, and it reminded me of uh, how important she was to me in my early formidable years as an artist um, or a developing young artist. And so I was like, my goodness, flowers, where can I be a part of giving out flowers to Miss Roberta Flack, you know? So, um, so again, I'm very honored that you even thought of me um, around this, especially since it's kind of like when I was younger, especially when I was younger, I had random people kind of say to me that, I had reminded them of her in some kind of way or that there was some kind of connection there already. So, I mean, I'm looking at Roberta Flack like this is just somebody I love to listen to. She has this beautiful, delicious voice and it's very vulnerable and um, honest. And I'm attracted to that as a young person, but even as a grown person too. Mm -hmm. But for someone to walk up to me and say that, that, they, they see the, that connection there. That was a whole nother thing. And it really took me a long time to even understand what they were talking about. I, You know, as I got older, I started to see maybe what folks were talking about. Maybe some parallels. Um, yeah. That I hadn't even grown into yet. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you remember? Well, who were the women that you listened to?
0: coming up. And do you remember when Roberta Flack sort of entered the fold?
1: Roberta Flack was in my orbit very early on. I would say probably around like 11, 12, 13. So around that time I was like doing talent shows and things like that. And uh, so those would be like the, the occasions where uh, potential A- A&R people, whatever would be around. And and then what they do is they kind of like describe to you who you who they think you are, what you sound like. Right? Also in the orbit was, um, I was listening to Sarah Vaughn, of course. I was listening to Phyllis Hyman. I was listening to Gladys Knight. I was listening to Billy Ocean. Caribbean Queen. Yep. No pressure. Okay. okay. I was listening to uh, Nancy Wilson. Those -hmm. were the people who were like in my orbit at the time, which Mm -hmm. is really interesting, especially with the Phyllis Hyman part, because it was like, you know, the elders in my life used to say, who is this young thing? (laughs) It's all this grown music. What do you know about the song Old Friends? What you know about that song, <laughs> you know? Right. That was one of the first songs that I sang, you know, with a band, a school band, junior high school band. So junior high school, let me calculate. Yeah, I was about 11 or 12. What am I, wow. doing? I look back now, like, what am I doing singing Old Friends? What, what the?
0: <laughs> but you know, that's so interesting because even that mm-hmm. is, a, is a Roberta Black Parallel, if you think about how young she was,
2: yeah. sort of learning
0: this sophisticated, you know, older music by, you know, by the time she's 13, 14, she's about yes. to, she done graduated high school. She's going to Howard at 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 15. So this sort of old soul. Yes. You know, I've been here before. Yes. Saying even that is, is a parallel. Yeah, indeed. indeed. Yeah. I mean, tell me, as a vocalist, do you do this or did you do this, where you would sort of categorize, like, okay, I've got my Ella, Sarah, Diana, Bag over here, and yeah. then I got my Gladys, Aretha, uh, yeah. you know, or maybe Aretha's at her own bag, but you know, <laughs> did, did you, but did you, um, did you do that with vocalists when you were working out, who am I listening to and who's my sort of north star as I'm becoming, you know, developing my own craft? Did you sort of compartmentalize in any kind of way?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because I think, I think the music, when you think about the music business, the separations of genres was very in- intense. I mean, I don't know if that has changed, if we can say that it's changed that much per se right now. But I know definitely back then, you know, each one was its own bag and you had to like almost be completely devoted to each bag in a specific kind of way you know performance wise. So it's like it was it was a matter of saying, well this is my straight ahead jazz brain and this is my more pop brain and then, and then this is my R&B brain and then this is my gospel brain, right? Which is really interesting about Roberta because she's one of the few vocalists that was able to kind of just cross all of those genres. So I hear all of those brains in one gorgeous voice in the way that she delivers the lyric in her artistry in general. And, and then finding out that she was <laughs> doing all the arranging and all that crazy, it, like, it kind of really changed my mind about, well, now it has changed my mind about having to compartmentalize things, which was really, Back then, when I was coming up, it was like you had to be in in a lane, you know? Right. Yeah. I remember having a voice teacher say, she was was the uh, instructor for one of the, for our German diction class at LaGuardia. Mm -hmm. And I remember her saying that I had to choose. Interesting. I had to choose. If I wanted to be great, I had to choose. That's what she said to me, actually. It was a big shift for me. It was a decision I had to make, so. But that's a whole nother conversation. But that idea that you had to choose which genre lane you were gonna go down. Like, you couldn't be a full-on well-rounded, well-explored, you know, in respects to styles and the world of music, right? You Mm -hmm. could not do that if you wanted to be great at what you did.
0: You know, I think that sometimes they say adults don't know the power of their words, Mm -mm. and I think that to some degree that's true. And then I also feel like sometimes they do know the Mm -hmm. power of their words, and the words are uh, intended in a certain way. For instance, when I when uh, which I know you watched as well the PBS documentary that came out on Roberta Mm Flack. And she talked about being at Howard and having Mm -hmm. the chair of the music department say to her something like, I know you want to be a concert pianist, but we have to also be sort of realistic about the opportunity. And so maybe you should just at least think about education where that statement felt like a nurturing one, at least in the way that she relayed how it how it affected her. But then there's also situations where someone can say something and it's not coming from that nurturing place and saying that greatness, because she used the word great with you. Yes. That you had to choose. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, I think that, you know, that also brings us to just talking about the difference between women exploring the depth and the expansion of their likes and tastes and places they want to go and explore and how those limitations are not necessarily there's they're reserved for women oftentimes
1: (laughs) am i am i putting it lightly (laughs) (laughs) you being gentle that's beautiful (laughs) yeah i think that as young women we do because of the kind of you know the way that things are set up we do kind of Bear the brunt of that uh, diminishment.
0: With Roberta, you know, her mother growing up, uh, her mother being a church organist, and her playing, you know, Handel and and Mozart mm-hmm. and Chopin, and but also mm-hmm. the, the the folk and the gospel that was part of her upbringing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think if you grow up black, there's no way that you can choose. You know, like what your teacher was saying, because we're so much bigger than than one lane, mm-hmm. just just
1: culturally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that saved me from not completely shutting myself in was Bob Stewart. So uh, Bob Stewart, the great tuba player, but also a great uh, uh instructor right Mm -hmm. um in that he inspired so many kids uh to play at a very high level to the such a high level that whenever they did um (laughs) essentially Ellington competition Mm -hmm. like they kept winning so much that they was like y'all can't come back y'all y'all gotta take a hiatus for two years Shall keep y'all here winning too much, you know. <laughs> and that that I credit that all to Bob. What he did when we were coming through is that we didn't just play straight ahead jazz. We got that, but then we had opportunities to play the funks. That's where I got, you know, <laughs> that's where I got my training in in uh, the genres of of music that comes out of the the Black diaspora, um, from my experience of being uh, in the band while he was our instructor. One of the things that he left us with was, you know, you're going to be out here and you might want to be a jazz musician, but you got to know more than that. Right. You got to know more than that. And so do you know how to play? the funk. Do you know how to get into the R&B? Do you know how to get into gospel music? Do you know how to get into well, we were already having to know how to get into classical music cuz that was part of the requirement as um, students at LaGuardia. So, um so it was, it was just about what I walked away with is understanding that from him That you had to be a well-rounded musician in order to be a successful musician out here in these streets. Which was in juxtaposition to what that other teacher said to me, which is... Yes. You see what I'm saying? Yes.
0: You made an incredible album called Offering the Music Mm -hmm. of Gil Scott Heron and Brian Jackson. Mm-hmm. Uh, in twenty fifteen uh featuring Lonnie Plaxico, Stefan Harris, Lakeisha Benjamin, Dave Stryker, just all these incredible musicians on the on it uh, produced by Mark Ruffin. Mm-hmm. And when I think about what you're saying that Mr. Stewart was saying to you, I can imagine that you know, <laughs> you brought him with you into that music, and it was so refreshing also you know um but i think it was because you know seeing all the like a lot a lot of the sides of you um including the activism piece you which yeah. which which also reminds me of roberta oh, yeah. fleck at that time you know mm-hmm. um it, in that time meaning late 1960s mm-hmm. uh doing songs like you know donnie hathaway's trying times or mm. um You know, uh, Ballad of the Sad Young Men, all the sad young
3: sitting in the bar, drinking of the night. and missing all the stars.
2: Yes. I mean this is a this
0: is a black woman mm-hmm. uh, making these records whether it was dealing with black uh, human suffering civil rights um, in the case of ballad of the sad young men even dealing with homophobia mm-hmm. and so the the lessons that he gave you mm-hmm. um, did you walk those, those things into the studio when you were approaching
1: Gail Scott Heron's music? I mean, of course, of course he's in the room because he's part of the he was part of the lesson. So um, that I learned, which is,, um, well, in that case, when I walked into the space, I'm thinking about the marriage of sound, Um, I'm also thinking about when I chose the songs that I chose to put on that record, um, or that I chose to uh, arrange for that record, Um, I'm thinking about um, the message, right? Mm -hmm. What needs to be said, reiterated. Um, There's a little sadness in there too, because it's like, why? Why are we still having the same conversation? But obviously, we still need to have that conversation. Um, so yes, absolutely, Mrs. Stewart's in this space. Um, but also, who else? Who else was in the room? Was Betty Carter for me? Mm. Um, that part with her, you know, it's like make it your own. When it came to this particular. Record, I was very insistent about being my own arranger. Yes. Because um, uh, um, I think a lot of times people assume that as a vocalist, uh, you need an MD. Um, but uh, <laughs> but I was insistent that I was like, I'm going to do these arrangements Because, and this is what I think is the reason why Roberta Flack sounded the way she sounded when when Rubina Flake took over. Yes, yes. (laughs) When Rubina took over, those tracks sounded even more delicious. Um, And I think the reason is because you know your own voice. So you know what works for you. Yeah. So you're not having to... How do I say that? Like, I've, I've been in situations where people wanted me to sound like somebody else. You see what I'm saying? hmm And then you having to amiate in order to get into that position. You see what I'm saying? As opposed to someone writing for you. Yes. yes. Right? And the best person who can write for you, especially if you if you know how to write, is you. Because you know what you can do and you also know how to challenge yourself. Mm, mm -hmm. Right? Which is what happened for me at that record. So I was challenging myself, arranging wise, and also vocally. Because there were some things that I was doing on that record that I really hadn't been doing because because of that moment where I felt like I had to choose. I had chosen a lane. Mm. And then here was I given an opportunity to kind of like start to blur some of those lines that I felt like I had to respect. Even though I was having to do other kinds of gigs and I was taught to do that, you know, from Mr. Stewart, you know.
0: Yes. Mr. Stewart reminds, he sounds like he's the, the Les McCann, if you will, of your, you know, <laughs> Roberta Flack. You know, yeah. because I think about, you know, Roberta Flack, she's singing at. the the little local nightclub in DC and, you know, she's getting a lot of attention Mm
2: -hmm. and
0: Les McCann goes to Joel Dorn and says, you know, I want you to hear, you know, Roberta Flack and, you know, she's amazing. And Joel Dorn, the talking about the big Atlantic records uh, producer Mm
2: -hmm.
0: uh, extraordinaire, but he says he didn't want to quote sign any chicks. That's a quote. (laughs)
1: Ooh, I had a, ooh, it, you know. I had like, a whole visceral response to that statement. Did, you know, yeah. I, but it but it, and it just made me think about, I have to admit, I definitely have spent a lot of time romanticizing the people that I loved, their experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, on their way to being who they are, recognized, seen, or being the great performers and getting those opportunities to move all over the world and be like um, be like a Roberta, be like a Diane, or be like Diane Reeves, I, I said, or Dee Dee Bridgewater, for example, or mm-hmm. Ella Fitzgerald. For, you know, I'm just saying. Yeah. We really don't understand the kind of level of, uh, the gentle word, is challenge, challenges that they've gone through. Mm-hmm. Challenging blockages, but really, I want to say tomfoolery and BS. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot more fitting. I mean, that's really what I want to say. Um, that they had to go through, whether unbeknownst to them, because in this case that you're speaking about, somebody was speaking on her behalf, Yeah, right? But the the fact that the door had to be shoved open, so to speak, for for her, with that voice, yeah, with that talent,, Oof. with I mean, just her piano playing in it of itself, you see what I'm saying? I do, I do. That that boggles my mind. I think, I, and then, you know, it's, I feel like this part of the conversation needs to be had more so so that the young artists are, who are coming along really understand what the heavy lift is. Yes. And what it look can look like. Yes. Especially for us uh, women of color. Absolutely. I don't want to deal with a chick. That's deep.
0: That is deep. Oh, they're attitudinal and they're this and they're that. But I'm gonna and take that money on the back end. How about that? So he because he ends up signing her uh th- through uh you know that alliance, that powerful presence where Les McCann was using his Amen. And saying, yeah, like you've got to you you've got to sign this woman
2: mm-hmm. uh,
0: now on the spot. You've you've got to, you've got to do this. Like you said, there's always a a another layer. There's always, you know, you open that, that Pandora's box and there's all this other stuff there. Yeah. Um, I I just wanted to go back to, Hmm. uh, you doing the, the Gil Scott Heron record for a second, because, uh, there's a parallel here of, Mm -hmm. uh, social music.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And, uh, I wondered if you, what you think about or what you can share about Roberta Flack doing this kind of, of protest music. I mean, there were, this predates Marvin Gaye's sort of magnum opus, what's yeah. going on, you know, what's going on uh, predates, mm-hmm. you know, Stevie Wonder predates a lot of the, mm-hmm. um, a lot of the, what they would call folk at the, mm-hmm. you know, what what they mean by folk music mm-hmm. as a black woman to be speaking about these issues, whether, you you know, the the social issues that we mentioned, I mean, What is that significance to you?
1: Black women have always been at the forefront of saving the community, right? I mean, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that, you know? So it's not shocking to me that she started her career as an activist and used her voice musically in that way. I think what's disappointing is that She didn't get this kind of notoriety in that earlier time. But what's also interesting is is it's this particular way that women, Black women who have been activists and use their voice in that way, especially artists, um, it's this particular way that, that they approach communicating their message to their audience. And it feels very familiar to me. Mm. So even I feel like I feel like the it, it, it was when I listened back to Roberta Flack's music during that early time where she was doing mostly the protest music. It feels uh, similar to the choices I was making in respects to the types of songs that Gil Scott Heron had had. Done, and Brian Jackson, for that matter. Let's not uh, leave him out of the absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I was choosing those particular types of songs, and I haven't figured out exactly what the thread is. But the first thought that came to mind was we are thinking about community, compassion, togetherness. So those were the songs that I got was most attracted to. And that's when I, when I listen to Roberta's early songs, her protest songs. Though, that's the thread,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right, for me. Mm-hmm. And it's also delivered in a certain kind of way that I can't, I have not figured out what the word is yet, but I see it. I know it when I see it. Mm-hmm. Um, that is very particular to how women are. Understood. If that makes sense. And then I even hesitate to even say that because, you know, the spectrum of womanhood is broad. So I don't want to like put that in, in any kind of a box, because you know, that's Fair. Pro- that's problematic. Yeah. yeah. But but what I mean is like um yeah, I don't know how to say that differently, actually.
0: I think you said it exquisitely. You know, I, I think you said it exquisitely. And, and you know, that lane of music, when we get into this idea of folk music, mm-hmm. and I think that Roberta Flack, she was also a folk artist.
2: Absolutely. But because,
0: yeah, but because she wasn't necessarily performing songs that she'd written, there was this this hierarchy mm. of, of artistry, right so mm-hmm. if you if you even though she's a total phenom prodigy brilliant pianist brilliant uh interpreter that because these were songs that she was interpreting and but not writing that there was somehow a lessening of that and and I would mm-hmm. love to know just your thoughts as of uh, you know, and you're a composer, arranger, musician in your own brilliant right. Um, so I feel like you're the perfect person to ask. What impact do you think it has to have this sort of hierarchy, and and how can we begin to dispel that? Because mm. she was brilliant.
1: You know. Okay, so I'm 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 having multiple thoughts here. Mm-hmm. I think. I think everything starts with education, right? You know, in the last 20 years, uh, music education has kind of like gone down, like, you know, um, and the importance of arts education in general um, has shifted immensely, I believe. So that's one thought I was having, which causes this relationship with artistry, to be diminished, like so, value the value system is diminished.
2: Mm-hmm. So in my
1: classroom, interpretation is everything. Mm-hmm. That's really the cut, the the essence of what your job is. Not only as a vocalist, I just taught a class a couple of days ago. So yeah, yes, yeah, nice. We know you know how to play your instrument. That's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why you're here. We know. That's why you got hired for the gig. But do you know how to make music? Ooh. And what does it mean to make music? Mm-hmm. Do you know how to reflect the, the, the life experience, human experience, back to the people in the audience so that they, which is our job, part of the, our, our job is to be healers, Healing process is to reflect or mirror back their experience that they might not feel allowed to acknowledge. Mm-hmm. You acknowledge it. It's that's the same version of testifying in the church, right? Okay. Amen. You reflect it back to them, you give them permission to see themselves, and then maybe feel a little healed enough to then maybe shift something about it, right? Mm-hmm but that's our job to help people see themselves. Right? That's the job of the interpreter. Right?
2: Mhm.
1: Okay. Yeah. So, when I think about some of the great and well, great vocalists that I've connected with, they all had that essence. Mm-hmm. Or even great instrumentalists, too. They all carry that essence of being able to interpret something, a song, in some particular kind of way. Yes. Now, the hierarchy. When they alluded to that hierarchy in the documentary, I said, oh, my God. Mm Mm-hmm. Finally, somebody put into words exactly what I've been feeling for the last 20 years, Um, which is, there is a hierarchy. And I think it has a lot more to do with who are the gatekeepers? Mm-hmm. Who are the people who decide at any given moment whom is worth the billing? Okay. Mm-hmm. The support, mm-hmm. right? Because, and and I'm going to say this is pre, because I'm going to consider that the tide is shifting a little bit because of social media and all that stuff. So there's mm-hmm. kind of like that middle person is no longer in between the audience and the artist, right? Yes. In the same way that they were before. Right. But we don't know how long that's going to last for us, so that's a whole other conversation. Like, when you think about us, our age, we have been alive during, like, uh, multiple shifts in the music business because of technology, Right. Because of society, uh, because of social construct, because our world has gotten so small mm-hmm. and that has shifted the way that we interact with each other. But it also shifts the paradigm in respects to who gets to have control over the narrative musically or con- who gets to have control over the value system of what mm-hmm. is artistically held on the pedestal as opposed to what is not right but the point is yes i feel there is still a hierarchy i think the hierarchy is the same it has not shifted since then i think it is racial um and it has a lot to do with again whoever is the gatekeepers and who 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 are the people who are deciding what the value system should look like?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: There's, there's a level of underappreciation. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been, even in my preparing to talk to you today, that's something that I've been trying to reconcile. You know, because all of her albums were, I mean, she had put out like four, mm-hmm. four five albums before Killing Me Softly that mm-hmm. were just, I mean, top-notch. Beautifully executed. She's got the top cats in the game playing with her. Um, and it doesn't she's,
1: matter.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And somehow there's a... Um, she's a chick. Elusiveness. She's, she's a chick. Right. You know, I mean, what, one of the things that um, I find stunning about her, though, is mm-hmm. that, especially as we get into Killing Me Softly, this record, Mm-hmm. Which has elements of funk, soul, jazz gospel, yep. it runs the gamut, yes <laughs> but it's it's not it's not sold up, and what I mean by that is i I almost feel like when black folks did have the opportunity to to explore the larger canon of of black music mm-hmm. um, there was an expectation that you had to really soul it up, blacken it yeah. up, or, you know, however, yeah. you know, and not to say that doing the opposite of that is, is white, but there was a certain set of musical tenets mm-hmm. that I feel were required if you were going to do music outside of the church, the funk, the soul is like, well, you got to put that thing on it. And I think one of the remarkable things that Roberta Flack was able to do was do it her way in her wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Do Roberta's wheelhouse, mm-hmm. not uh, Aretha's or Mahalia's or, mm-hmm. or whoever. And I feel like she's one of the few, especially for that time, yeah. who was able to... I would maybe even add Dionne Warwick to that conversation. Mm, that's and, true. And not without consequence, right? Because there's also a reckoning with, are they trying to sound white? Are they trying to, you know what I mean? There's that whole thing too, you know? But I think it's stunning that Roberta Flack was able to do Roberta Flack, Mm -hmm. not a version of her that would be inauthentic, but might appeal to a Blacker,
1: audience or, or, or something like that. Or a wider audience. Right. That and that's kind of the thing that is is magical about Roberta is that she was born at the right time because she was able to be authentically herself, artistically, in a way that would completely shut down any questions about whether she is marketable or not. Mm-hmm. So it really didn't matter whether they thought she was marketable. She was out here marketing. <laughs> she was out here marketing. <laughs> I love that.
0: The album starts off with, you know, it, the album is the title. The first song is the title track, mm-hmm. Killing Me Softly. Mm-hmm. And uh, we now know that it was, uh, and some knew before, that uh it was a you know a cover that she'd heard on an airplane. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't, you know, I didn't even know they had in flight music in the seventies.
1: Listen, let me tell you something. When you when you got it like that, you find uh-huh. out all kinds. You have all kinds of experiences. You know, I'm like, in-flight music in 1971? What are we talking about? Who, like, knew? who they had, knew? It was like a little Walkman or something like that. I'm joking. But.
0: It, it had to be. I'm so, yeah, because it couldn't have been, you know, the, the uh, touch screen in the in the headrest in front of you. I'm so curious how that they did be. it. But, uh, you know, we know that uh, a young woman, I mean, young woman, 19, I think, um, uh, mm. Named uh, Lori Lieberman. Yes. She had written a poem inspired by uh, a performance that she had seen of uh, uh, Don McLean, who yes. bit, uh American Pie. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. And
0: uh, she had, at the time, a management partnership with uh, two much older men. One whom she had been in a, uh, relationship. a relationship. Yeah, mm-hmm. where there was clearly a
1: power dynamic. Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm.
0: And um, she shares this poem and it becomes the lyrics to Killing Me Softly. Uh, She's sort of written out of the history of uh, being a part of this song as a Mm -hmm. writer. Um, uh, But she ends up recording it herself in 1972. It doesn't uh, gain any uh, real traction, Mm -hmm. but... Roberta discovers this song on the airplane. She falls in love with it. She puts her Roberta thing on it, changes up the <laughs> chord structures and all of this. And of course it wins, you know, uh, album of the year mm-hmm. that year, the, you know, the rest is history. But mm-hmm. I think it's worth noting while we're on the subject of the the, the things that women have to deal with as artists uh, that we not leave, you know, Lori Lieberman out of the story. And I, I just wanted to know, you know your thoughts on that whole really really complex situation.
1: You know when I heard about this, um, and you should when you shared the article, I should say, and I read about this. Um, disappointed but not shocked, right? And you know it just kind of plays into the same. I don't want to call it a narrative, but the same kind of tomfoolery that has been going on for a long time because of the hierarchy, like how and. Who gets respected, who gets who gets credit, who's in control, and who they decide gets to be uh honored and not honored or respected or not and not respected or acknowledged, just a better word. That's the word I'm looking for. I'm not surprised. I find it interesting though that she, according to that article, um, that interview, I should say did not want, she w- she wasn't really interested in suing, per se, to get her writing credits. This was really just about, here is something that came from my heart and soul. I had this moment in my life that mattered to me so much that it moved me to write this poem, and out of this poem came this song, and I w- want that to be acknowledged. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I find it, again, not shocking Mm -hmm. that this man would be indignant. (laughs) You're being nice. Am I? I? I tend to be a very nice person. Yes. Just, like, really insisted upon writing her out of the conversation. And it's really, it's like, really, it would have been a really simple thing to do. Yeah. Just to say, this was my muse. I mean. Simple.
0: Simple. I mean, we've seen it where someone who maybe didn't even write a poem they just were in love with a person or they just felt mm-hmm. inspired by other things that they had done and they can say that this was their muse this is someone who clearly uh in many ways sort of co-wrote yeah. this this song and like yes. you said you know and obviously we have to deal with you know copyright law and what what constitutes being a writer on a song as it pertains to these particular set of bylaws right mm-hmm. but like you said, it would have been no harm, no foul, and just appropriate to have her name in in the conversation. Yeah, and I think that's all she wanted. And I thought that it was really beautiful that um, R- Roberta Flack herself had had, you know, acknowledged that mm-hmm. she was Team Lori in in uh, wanting this to be uh, sort of corrected, correct
1: the yeah. record, you know. But it it is, it it also you know um, you know points to the fact that we a lot of times we don't know what's going on behind the scenes. So even Miss Roberta, Miss Rubina didn't know that this song had come from another woman. That's right. And when you actually think about the lyrics in it of itself, like, mm. like there's something. About it that has that for the subject matter of it has the tenderness, um, honesty that I feel like you know songs that women write have. You know, mm-hmm. maybe I'm biased, but for me when when it was like, oh, a woman was the inception of this song. Yeah, makes sense. Now this makes sense. <laughs> Absolutely. You know. I mean, the first couple of years of me encountering this song, um, I thought a woman did write it. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I was in high school. I thought it was Lauren Hill. Then I found out it was Roberta Flack. And then, <laughs> I, <laughs> right. but you know, because I was an excavator. So, you know, for the for that era, you always go, ain't hey, nothing new under the sun. Let me see if they borrowed this from somewhere.
0: Yeah. I'll come
1: they- to find out Lauren borrowed it from somewhere, right? You know.
0: Well, what I thought was fascinating was when Roberta Flack talks about adding that. Whoa, mm-hmm.
1: you she know, was like, "That's she,
0: me." That's that. That's me. Exactly. <laughs> when, um, you know, b- because you know, as we were talking about a little earlier, that importance of being the an arranger and an mm-hmm. an interpreter. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think about. Just all the great interpreters of song and how they could turn a song and spin it on its head mm-hmm. and just turn it into just mm-hmm. something glorious. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when she said I added that, and that's mine, I'll be honest. When she first said it, I said, hmm, that's um, that was an interesting thing to <laughs> to say, the way she the way she said it. And yes. then I had a moment and I know that you are going to get it because you and I, we have this, this thing. I'm already with you. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, when the Fugees do it years later, Mm -hmm. that part becomes the part. That becomes the part. It's almost like when Before I Let Go comes on. Ba, 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 what does every Black person do? (laughs)
1: Come on and then we do that, and then we do that <laughs> I, <mean>, I got ahead <laughs> to my favorite part, sorry, I jumped ahead a little bit, but yes,
0: but, but when I thought about it like that, I'm like, that whoa, whoa, whoa la la mm. la that made the song, who knew I mean, who knew, so when she said I had to. Hear hear her statement again because she put she put some stank on that statement. Like, <laughs> That's me. That's mine. And I said, "Well, you didn't change the melody. You just added whoa la 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 over the song. And then I had to say, "Angelica, yeah, that made the song. Yeah, that yeah. made the song. I mean, there's obviously everything makes but, the song. But, I, what the, but
1: no, mm-hmm. no, no, everything doesn't make the song. Actually, okay, everything doesn't make the song.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um." Meaning that the reason why that song still has life is because of that. Like Mm -hmm. right now, it's, what, uh, 50 years of life? Yeah. It's because of that, whoa. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the song is beautiful in and of itself, right? But it's the whoa, whoa, whoa that kept it alive for the last 50 years.
0: Yes, ma'am.
1: So there's something to be said for that. So I'm having like four thoughts, but I'm thinking a mentor said to me, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to ever be a good composer. He's like, every time you arrange, you're composing, right? So what is that about? Then my other thought is, it's quite interesting that the hierarchy is around the composer being the top person. Mm -hmm. Because when you think about how we as Black people in the American realm have -hmm. come to music, right? We were often in positions of having to play, I'm gonna just say the colonizer's music, and then we would arrange it and shift it. And now that's become the foundation of what American music sounds like. Funny enough, Where's the credit for that? You can't copyright that. Mm. Okay, mm. I know it's more complex than that,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and we can go down the rabbit hole. But I find it interesting that those are the people who get left out of the conversation. And Absolutely. so, and and then a lot of times, the way you put a song together, as I was talking to my students the other day, the musical journey, the dynamic journey. Of the song, right? As you get through four choruses, is for me the most important part of the performance.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's not enough to just write a great song or a great melody, but how do you take the people along with you through the story of that journey? Does mm-hmm. that
0: does that make sense? Oh, it makes all the sense. And and I think you're right. And I I thank you for that. Uh, I thank you for that
1: because you're you're absolutely right. But I feel like I feel like it's it's an interesting thing to, you know, I will consider that maybe, you know, I can be wrong, right, about it. I will consider that I can be wrong about it. But I find it very interesting that the arranger's voice is not actively held to the same esteem as the composer's voice.
0: to name uh you know a couple of your favorite songs from this album what would you say
1: they are so from this album of course killing me softly is you know the number one the title song um because that's my introduction to this album and also my introduction to Roberta flack um in general um but also uh Suzanne. Mm. Now, my actual initial introduction to Suzanne was through Diane Reeves. Really? And then when I went backwards, I was like, oh. <laughs> you know, so I don't know if Diane was listening. I- I'm assuming Diane was listening to Roberta Flack when she heard this song. Um, But... When I went back and listened, I was like, oh, Sugar Plum Fairies. This goes back to this idea, this affirmation for me or this confirmation for me that there's nothing new under the sun, that we all come from some place and that it is okay to be influenced by the people who came before you and who set a pathway up for you to open up your mind in respects to how do you approach your artistry and everything like that. So, Hmm. But the thing, the thing that touched me about the way that uh, Roberta approached the song, it's like, it's an example of like quiet intensity. Ooh. That I kind of talk about with my students every now and again, mm-hmm. like learning how to play with quiet intensity. hmm there's activity happening in the song rhythmically, but it's very gentle at the same time. And I find that to be like one of the most magical things about that arrange that arrangement of that song. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also, just the way that she approaches it, you know, just to me it's very connected to what I will call a jazz sensibility in phrasing. You know, it's very conversational mm. mm-hmm. um, and gorgeous. So I I mean that's for me, Suzanne is one of those. And then I'm the girl. When I listened to I'm the girl, it reminded me of <laughs> it's gonna sound a little weird mm. because I'm I'm centered in stories. I'm mm-hmm. centered in story. So the first thing that popped into my head was that song So by Betty Carter. Which is really about being the other woman, you know. Um and but there's it just the the not nonchalance, there's a better word about it. there's a better word, this kind of um resignation around it.
2: Mm. Mm-hmm.
1: And but then there's a sadness in there too.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What's magical about her her delivery of it is that she's able to deliver the layeredness of it. Mm. Of that story. Mm
0: -hmm. Which is hard to do when we're talking about that kind of subject, that sort of taboo.
1: Yes. The Mm. layeredness. This almost like I'll be the one. Go on out there in the streets, do what you do, but I'll be the one here waiting for you if you want to come back. I know I'm not your real love. I know I'm not your true love. And all the sadness that's underneath all of that—to
2: mm-hmm.
1: have to fall into a place where you decided that this is the most you could ever get. So, for uh, and to do it with such like tenderness, even though this fool don't even deserve all this deliciousness and tenderness. <laughs> but the point is, is that her ability to layer in experience, energy, story, like how actors do, mm-hmm. for for example,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? You know, that's the one thing about her. There's never a time that I listen to anything that Roberta Flack sings and d- don't come away with another understanding of what she was trying to say. Right, right. Or yeah. where she was coming from, or what she was feeling, or what she was trying to express, like, or communicate. You know what you had
0: said about um, the importance of the delivery when we were talking mm-hmm. about the interpret the interpretive part. I'm and with how, you. This is a great example of mm-hmm. that. The humanness, because mm-hmm. we don't often humanize the bad guy. Mm-hmm. the bad guy, right? Mm-hmm. She brings that, she doesn't bring complication, but I think what I hear you saying is that she's bringing a humanness mm-hmm. to something kind of, kind of taboo there. And just yeah. to go back to Suzanne for a second,
1: I mean... Oh, shoot, that song.
0: First of all, I didn't realize Diane Reeves had done that song.
1: Oh, yeah, that album is, it's on the Bridges album. Oh. Mm-hmm. And actually an arrangement of it. So when you go listen to that, <laughs> mm-hmm. you're going to see what I mean by it being, well, I didn't say this yet, but um, but why I'm saying that Roberta's is gentle. Um, And then here comes my initial interaction with it. I'm at like uh, to Diane Reeves' version of it. It's, it's like a storm that comes mm-hmm. in and out. It's almost like uh, the snowflakes fall in the beginning and then it turns into a storm, um, especially when she goes in and you want to travel with her and you want to travel blind and you feel like you can trust her because she, she's touched your perfect body with her mind.
3: And you want to travel
1: So like, Mm -hmm. you know, that is the uh, intensity I to go from understanding that, hearing it that way, I should say, and then to go back and to see how Roberta Flack interpreted it, which was just so much more, that's why I'm calling it gentle, you know, Mm -hmm. but it's still powerful. It's weird. And it's kind of like a reflection of her personality when you see her in interviews. Roberta Flack, that Mm -hmm, is to say. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That um, she has this quiet intensity. She has this quiet intensity. And that song is like
0: nine minutes plus. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, you know, that's that's a long song for a pop record. And yet she
1: holds you the whole way through. Yes,
0: it's a journey
3: takes you down to a place by the river. She's wearing rags and feathers from Salvation's army counters, and the sun pours down like honey on Our Lady of the Harbor, and she shows
1: For me, what I'm always reaching for is that kind of vibe, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, like how do you stay centered in that space forever? (laughs) I'm saying forever, but, you know, how do you do that? How do you do that? You know, I'm trying to get better and better at doing that, you know, and that's what I try to teach my students. Like, this is what we're trying to get to, you know, be present. Be vulnerable. Be willing to tell real stories. Best place to start from is your story. Then you can kind of practice telling other people's stories. Right? As Like as actors do. Right? Which still comes from you. Like, you know, a version of that is. That imagine if you were in this situation. Mm-hmm. How would you respond? You know, how would it feel? How would you act? How would... And then go from there. Again, that's to me, her vulnerability is the most magical thing about her because she's a true storyteller, essentially.
0: I'm just going down the list of these songs. Mm -hmm. I mean, Jesse, arranged by uh, the the great uh, composer and pianist Diodato Mm -hmm.
2: uh,
0: and also, uh, you know, CTI sort of mainstay in that time. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. and Janice Ian, who had been writing since she was, you know, like 14 years old, great folk artist. This song, Jesse, it is achingly beautiful. Oh you know, I mean, because the, when we think about the subject matter, which mm. is heartache and loss and missing you and wishing you were here, I turn around and, you know, you're not in my, you know, next to me. I mean, it's a tale as old as time because Mm -hmm. we've all been there Mm -hmm. but the way that Miss Roberta Flack renders that song I mean it the tenderness the aching with the subtlety
1: yes I mean this is the thing that baffles me with her like how does she do this I mean and the strings the strings in the back like just like everything was gorgeous around the, the arrangement, but also her delivery inside of all of that. Like, how does she do this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is always every question I ask myself when I go back to her. Like, Because it's really about where is that centered place? I know it's vulnerability. I know it's authenticity. I know that. But you know, when you really start excavating yourself
2: Mm.
1: to get deeper and deeper into that space. Like, how does she do that? What did she do, you know, to get to this place that every time she opened her mouth? Like, every... Again, I, every... Again, I could be romanticizing it. Like, right, you know? There might have been a show or two or three, you know? But when we hear her every time, she is centered in this very as you said, tender and authentic and vulnerable and honest space. will fix up my
3: hair And sleep unaware Hey, Jesse, I'm lonely
0: Without doing the things that
1: we may think that black, black singers are supposed to do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And 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 that's for me was the biggest pull towards her because mm-hmm. by no means have I ever felt that I was considered in that alignment of being the quintessential black singer. Right. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't say stereotypical, but what is expected of you in respects to being a black singer. I felt like I got that was a that was a push against that I had most of my life, even just as a someone coming up as a jazz singer. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. so when I got introduced to Killing Me Softly, that was even a thing for me to have to pull myself into the Lauryn Hill version because that's the Blacker version. Right. You see what I'm saying? Yeah,
0: okay, yes.
1: Whereas I felt more kindred, if I were to choose between the two, I felt more kindred spirit with Roberta Flack's version. In the way that, you know, she really just is expansive in the way that she uses her tone, in the way that she takes her time to sing the piece and from where it comes from. No heat, no shade. Lauren Hill's version is authentic too, but I'm just speaking about expectations. Sure. You know? Yes. Uh, like you have to riff everywhere. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just let's start there. Yeah. You know? Um, I grew up in a kind of church that didn't do all of that. Right, the expectation is that if you're black, you grew up in a church, that had to be Baptist, which meant you're doing all of that, right. You see what I'm saying? Yes. And so always feeling like, where do I fit in? roberta Roberta made me feel like I could fit in to that song.
2: Bye. I love what
0: you said about Roberta Flack giving you permission mm-hmm. and a place. Mm-hmm. To show a different blackness, a different mm-hmm. way to be black. Because when I look at artists now, like her, or Alex Isley, mm. or even before that, Aaliyah, mm. or a um, a Dionne Ferris who had the, who had a big voice. I know. I just I heart her so much. Oh or Michelle and Ocello. I mean, yes, Tracy Chapman. I mean, when Come we on. think about. Mm-hmm. are you a Sharon A. Wade? Permission, space, and a lane for mm-hmm. that. That's what she gave people. And you yourself is what I'm hearing you say.
1: So it's a permission to not have to perform the idea of what Blackness looks like. Yes. Which, to be honest with you, is, a, is it's um, it's a thing that has to be toggled with or, mm-hmm. or I'll, let me speak in I statements it's a thing that in the early years I toggled with I struggled with like having to perform there's no other way to say it perform blackness Yeah, through music and um, as opposed to saying look these are all this is the full spectrum you know, of what it can look like. And because you Black, you could expand the spectrum too, even if it looked like something that we don't even know what it looked like yet. Right? That part. That part. And I think that has a lot more to do with, um, again, who's holding the keys. That's it. That's right. Who's making the decisions about who gets to get through and have a good career or not have a good career, you know? Mm Mm-hmm be seen or not ever be seen you know mm-hmm. um, and even
0: in the song no tears in the end where uh that uh you know the great Wee ellis who did some of those arrangements most famously known as being a part of the, the james brown machine uh, but he was a very very um you know sort of well-rounded Uh, musician and uh, the songwriting team of William Salter and Ralph McDaniel Mm -hmm. we don't talk about enough when we talk about songwriting teams Um, but Mm -hmm. they write this song for her that is, it gets into something that's a little bluesier, a little funkier, Mm -hmm. she's giving Mm -hmm. you that side but Mm -hmm. she's still doing it her way
1: That I wonder, I should say, Mm -hmm. if the fact that she came up, you know, um, under her mother's wing, Mm -hmm. whether that kind of colored the way that she saw herself as an artist or a Mm -hmm. performer or a musician. Mm -hmm. And... Allowed her to be, and and oh, the other part is her being a teacher, too.
0: Yes,
1: yes, yes. It probably afforded her some kind of deep groundedness between those two things. Mm-hmm. Because when you're teaching kids, and I'm not saying all teachers do this. Or I should say not all people who are in teaching positions do this mm-hmm. but teachers, actual teachers, spiritual teachers um understand that their um, their assignment is to bring forth the essence of the, the the child or the being that which is in front of them yeah. And so in knowing that, as you're teaching, you realize how much more deeply you need to do it for yourself, too.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I wonder if that was part of the process of her landing in a place where there was quickly no question about her being or engaging in her authentic self. Not not feeling like she has to go through the toggle,
2: mm-hmm. you
1: know? That
0: That's a great... I would have never thought about that.
1: There's or that a, she uh, learned it quickly. She learned right. it quickly because she was a teaching spirit. Yeah. So you if you're a teaching spirit, you kind of have to kind of grapple with that in order for you to show up for your students in that way. Makes
0: sense. Makes I'm sense. Just, no, that's a theory. It, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I take it from you. You are... You're not only a, a wonderful artist, but you're also a very dedicated and impassioned and sought Mm -hmm. after, uh, Mm -hmm. professor. Uh, and, um, I had the honor of, of being a guest in one of your classrooms and I could feel the, the dedication and the passion and the, um, ingenuity of your classroom, Mm. you know? And so that, that makes, that makes a lot of sense to me. There's a song on the album. I think it might be my favorite. Um, I'm rarely the title song person. Do you think you know what song I'm going to say? No, I have no clue. I'm I'm curious. I'm getting excited. I just want to know what it is. (laughs) I think my favorite song on this album is Conversation Love.
1: Well, first of all, second of all, third of all, and fifth of all. (laughs) I mean, the orchestration on that song is just rude. (laughs) I mean in the most I mean that in the most delicious way as us us 90s kids be saying we be be calling it the opposite like how dare you be so beautiful like thank you Um, (laughs) (laughs) Brooklyn popped out but uh, (laughs) uh, oh my god that song what I find so beautiful about that song is how how like clearly like i'm imagining herself sitting in a room being so pensive it's just it's so thoughtfully expressed mhm you know thoughtfully and gorgeously expressed and, you know and it was really interesting about it is so i wonder if this is a just a thing that the 70s brought out of people I don't uh-huh. know what was going on during that time. Um, but like these luscious, delicious arrangements that make you want to ride on the side of the a mountaintop. You mm. know, drive up the mountaintop, and, you know, the windy road and just lay back or, you know what I mean? Like it, it just, the way she takes her time to, that's what I mean by the thoughtfulness, the way she takes her time mm. I want my babies to know how to engage with that.
0: Yeah, in because that way. That's, yes, because there's so much space mm-hmm. in that uh, in that piece. You know, I think we talk a lot about uh, Miles Davis's use of space, Thelonious Monk's use Come of on. space. Yes, yes. Roberta Flack's use of space as well. Mm-hmm. Donny Hathaway's use of space, for that matter, um, mm-hmm. in that song where it's just like, you know, it's, and it's right here. And she's just, da, 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 da. and the changes, oh, <gasps> the changes almost, the changes almost make you feel like the time signature is not 4-4. Four, four. There's a, there's a, there's a propensity. There's a push that makes the signature a little, just a little topsy-turvy the way she, the way she's phrasing. All
3: of the pain.
1: See, I blame everything on jazz. So <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, well,
0: well, let me just say real quick before let me just quickly interject because we have we do need to just, you know, talk about the personnel on this album for a second. You know, Roberta Black, you know, on vocals, piano, rhythm rhythm arrangements, the great Eddie Gale on guitar, Ron Carter on the bass, Grady Tate. I mean, come on, on drums and Ralph McDonald on on percussion, with I mean, right. just some of the baddest. Arrangers, a uh, string, you know, because we're talking about strings a lot. You yes. know, some of the baddest string arrangements on this particular tune. We're talking about uh, Don Sebesky, but I mean, go ahead, just go. You were saying the jazz.
1: I, I listen. I mean, when I th- when I listen to it, especially the 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 changes, right? I hear what a lot of quote unquote modern jazz musicians. Mm-hmm are trying to do now. So I'm saying she was already doing it. It reminded me of uh, Terry Lynn's Mosaic album. There was a song on her Mosaic album. And I can't think of which which song it was, but I know it was from that album. And my brain went, oh, this is what we're doing. Okay. Mm -hmm. I hadn't made the connection before. Mm -hmm. So basically... That music has inspired a whole nother 20, 30 year generation of musicians. Yes. Whether they know it or not. I mean, like I tell my students all the time, there's mm-hmm. nothing new under the sun. Mm-hmm. You've been poured into and really what becomes you is how you decide to mix that all up and create something from that. But there's nothing new under the sun. hmm. That's right. I just wanted to touch
0: on this this tune, When You Smile.
3: When you smile, I can see.
0: it reminds me so much of this tune on donny hathaway's extension of a man which also comes Uh, out in 73 called magdalena it's kind of like this i don't know if dixieland is an appropriate term to use but i'll uh, say that term loosely yes that part (laughs) yeah yeah but but it's such a it's a song that you would not think would be on an album in 1973. It's like <laughs> show tune. Mm-hmm. You know, it sounds like something you might hear at the fair. Yeah. you know, it's just it's this very. It reminds me so much of of Donny Hathaway's Magdalena. Oh,
3: Magdalena, nothing like the saint you are. Uh-huh.
0: I bring that up to say this mm. because I'd love to know your thoughts. Um, if I would give any one sort of critique about the documentary, I would have loved to hear more about Roberta Flack's relationship with Donny Hathaway, their musical relationship.
2: mm mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: We know the tragic story. And yes, we did get to see a a more vulnerable side of of Roberta Flack in in losing her friend and and collaborator. But I think what we're missing, and I think there should be a whole documentary on just them, Mm -hmm. is... I mean, they've just come off the heels of doing this album together with Where is the Love and, you know, all those great songs. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. now with 73, she's doing Killing Me Softly. He's doing Extension of a Man. And they both have this song that draws from this time. I mean, they had to have been, here I go romanticizing, but (laughs) it makes makes sense, right? Like we weren't Mm -hmm. there. So we're, we're left with our imagination and logic. Yeah. And I'm saying I would have just loved to to see and hear more. But I mean, when she was talking about him playing in her in her in her living room, and she's running out the kitchen in her apron, he's like, "Come on!" I, got, I mean, they they met at Howard together. Mm-hmm. They, I, you know, I didn't learn any more about the gelling right. of their relationship because they were so musically important to one another mm-hmm. that. It would have meant so much to me to just see a little more of that. So you
1: just covered so much. Okay. So that particular song, I'm just going to say, I think that when I listen to it, I feel the same kind of level of tongue-in-cheek energy that um, they do, uh, that I feel when I hear um, If you want my lovin' when they do that duet. Yes. And the tongue in cheek of that energy, like almost, I mean, look at look, y'all, um, we could do it like this if we wanted to, right? Yes. And then look at how we do it, even when we do it like that, you know? Um, it also reminded me of um, Carmen McRae, the ballad of Thelonious Monk.
3: I didn't know what he was playing. But the dog next door kept baying and the waitress was humming along. And I forgot about Gene Autry and the things he taught me when I heard Thelonious Monk. Play it, Monk.
1: That's a very tongue-in-cheek kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, arrangement-wise. Okay. Uh, there voices themselves fit very well together. Um, What I also notice about her singing um, and his singing when they're together is that they push each other. So recordings prior to that, they sound a certain way, but when they sing together, they hear things in a different way, which is what I love about singing with other folks. What would you
0: say 50 years later this Hmm. album means to the culture?
1: Here stands an artist, a woman, who was able to transcend... All boundaries artistically, but even in her lifetime, right? Cause I'm sure, I'm sure someone might have tried to discourage her along the way um, around, you know, following her heart in respects to being a performer, which she said she always wanted to be, right? So to see the life of someone who stayed on the path and gave so much along the way, because again, even when she was doing her thing, she was encouraging other people to then do their thing, i.e. Luther Vandros, which I was like, wait a minute. And I would have probably told Luther Vantros the same thing the way he was singing in backgrounds. <laughs> Listen. But that's that teacher, see? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? That's that energy, you know? That's that uplifting and communal and compassionate and, you know, that energy. So I think, I think for me this album, even though you might not know it on the surface unless you do the research, right? You research mm-hmm. her deep and deeply. But you can hear the level. I always say that you can tell what kind of personality you're dealing with just by listen, listening to someone's voice. And what I can hear very clearly is how much of a beautiful, communal, caring, vulnerable, kind spirit she is. That's beautiful, Charnay. And that we all get to be that if we so desire to. That's the value of it. So you don't have to make a record where it's aggressive, for lack of a better word. I have my feelings about that word. Mm -hmm. Um, Or it has to be callous. I think a lot of music, at least, Early thousands to now. It's a lot of callousness and unkindness. That's right. I'm I'm glad I'm I'm starting to see artists today kind of turning the tide a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I feel like that album is a reminder that we get to be a little bit, it's okay to be vulnerable and to create something that's personal and kind. Again, kind and compassionate and you know what I mean? Yes, ma'am. I do. I just want to say
0: thank you, Sharnay Wade.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're so welcome. And I hope we get to have more conversations because this is like really inspiring. And uh, you know, um again, uh, it's just this put me on a a path of, sort of kind of reset um my energy and I, I I'm looking forward to the next thing that I'm gonna do now because of this. I ain't gonna tell you yet.
0: Okay. Well, I'm excited. Whatever, whatever it may be. I'm mm-hmm. so thrilled. I'm excited. I have I have like the good chills. <laughs> I, I'm so excited.
1: Where can people find you? Um, you can find me at SharnayWade.com. You can find me on the Instagrams. It's still Sharnay Wade. I make it easy for you to find me. Amazing. Thank
0: you so much. And we will see you next time.
1: Yes, indeed. Yes, yes indeed.
0: we will. Milestones with Angelica Wiener is a production of WBGO Studios. Theme music produced by Riley K. Glasper. Recorded at Teal Octopus in Brooklyn. Episode co-producer, Corey Goldberg. I'd like to send you off by wishing you a happy, healthy, joyful and inspired Black History Month. Check out the rest of WBGO's
2: podcast lineup at wbgo.org/studios.